Welcome to episode eight of the Monster Podcast. This is Justin. And this is Jay. Today we have a very, very special guest joining us to talk about the monster. We have Dean Kiekheffer, recently retired Major League pitcher. Dean, welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. I'm an avid listener. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's flattering. We, uh, we're big fans of yours. Jay and I know Dean from uh, Tobacco Row, famed Facebook group dedicated to pre-war baseball cards. Dean is a fellow collector. Dean, how'd you get into collecting? Well, when I was younger, I, you know, I was, I grew up in the nineties and early two thousands. And so it was just getting boxes. And I can remember back then, I wish I knew what I knew now, uh, but you would go to your Walmart or Kmart and you would get the cheapest box with the most cards in it. And I had a blast ripping them open and sorting through them and putting them by teams or in alphabetical order. And so I was really into them. Um, but then unfortunately, obviously, once you realize those cards were worthless, it kind of turned me away a little bit. And then in 2017, uh, I got back into collecting and, uh, I collected a little bit of everything. And then I decided to just go strictly tobacco because I just thought it was cool. So I feel like we missed a very important chunk of your life story here. You just went from collecting in the nineties to 2017 when you started collecting tobacco, uh, but you left out <laughs> what it was like to become a, a big league player and see yourself on a baseball card for the first time and all that. So I don't, if I'm interested in it, I'm guessing other people might be. Uh, do you yeah, want to give a little so, bit of that story? Yeah. Yeah. So I, in 2010, I was drafted out of the University of Louisville. Um, I was a 36 round draft pick by the St. Louis Cardinals. And I progressively worked my way through their system, obviously being you know, a late round draft pick. I was never really quite considered a prospect, but you just keep grinding away and putting up decent enough numbers to hang around year after year. Um, and I ended up in the, let's see, it would have been November, I believe, of 2015. I got added to the 40-man roster, um, which is a pretty big deal. And then in 2016, I debuted with the St. Louis Cardinals. And uh, that was, it was awesome. Debut was great. I got to throw to Yadier Molina at Dodger Stadium. Um, it was Vin Scully's last season. So my professional debut was called by Vin Scully. So I always wow. thought that was really neat. That's, um, so, that's so cool. Yeah. And it, it's funny looking back now, you know, when you're, you're young and you're, you're in the big leagues for the first time, you don't want to step on any toes or anything. And I wish I would have done a better job of, of getting, you know, autographs and, and, you know, talking to the Hall of Famers that were around and stuff like that. Um, and, and and if I could go back, I would, you know, go up and try and meet Vince Goley and have him sign one of my debut balls that I got. I just thought it was it was something neat. Um, and getting to watch it uh, afterwards, it, it was really fun. But uh, it was a good debut. I actually I struck out four of the first five batters. And I was like, man, the big leagues is easy. And then <laughs> quickly got humbled. Uh, my last batter hit a solo homer off me, and that was my debut. Um, so it went well. But I, I ended up spending about half a season in the big leagues with the Cardinals that year. Uh, unfortunately, we finished one game out of the playoffs. It came down to the last game of the season. And then I got designated in the offseason and claimed over to Seattle. And I went to Seattle in 2017. And I went to spring training with them and was the last pitcher that was cut from spring training. So I almost made an opening day roster in Seattle. Um, and then after that, it was it was weird. I just for the first time in my career, I, I really 
I had a really bad season and it was just really bad timing. Um, it was hard. I ended up being in AAA the whole year. I was, I think, one of 47 pitchers used by the AAA team that was there the entire season. So there's a lot of turnover and you lose a lot of buddies, um, you know, people that you bond with. And it was just it was just hard. It was a hard season. There wasn't much team camaraderie. Um, people were coming and going a lot. I'm yeah. just sitting here. I haven't, I haven't asked any questions because it's just so cool to hear, Dean, you talk about your career. It it really was, I think, every kid, every young boy's dream to to play in the big leagues and work your way up and, and get to play baseball for a living. And it's, it's really cool to hear you tell your stories. I just have to ask. So your your debut in Los Angeles, what goes through your head when the announcer says your name and you step out there on the field to pitch in front of? X thousand, X tens of thousands of people. So it's kind of funny. I, I I didn't hear it, to be honest. I had gotten a couple of good pieces of advice. Um, one was from the scout that originally drafted me, who, incredible guy, still talk to him this day, probably at least once every other month. And um, he was so big for me because he, even after drafting me, he stayed in contact with me the whole time and encouraged me and, and asked me how I was doing and, and try to help out. And luckily, you know, I obviously called him when I got called up and he said, he said, whatever you do, just focus on Yachty. That's all you got to do. Just focus on Yachty. And the other piece of advice uh, I got was uh, just don't look up in the stands. When I got, when I got called up, I was, we were in Omaha, Nebraska and so I had to I had to catch flights from Omaha, Nebraska to Arizona and then Arizona to Los Angeles. So I was obviously I was extremely excited and I got my flight itinerary and I was going to get in right around game time. And I was like, this is going to be fantastic. Well, I took my first flight from Omaha to Arizona. And when I got to my gate in Arizona for the flight going to L.A., it was delayed so i obviously got on my phone contacted and said you know hey my flight's delayed and obviously the team looked into earlier flights and see if they could get me in in time for game time well unfortunately all the other flights going to la were leaving right around or just after what my flight had been delayed to so i ended up staying on the same flight and so by the time i got into the airport the game was probably in i'd say the fourth inning or so so I got my bags and uh, <clears throat> got in a taxi. And of course, you're in L.A., so L.A. traffic is a little bit insane. And so it took a while to get there, a while to get there. And so we get to Dodger Stadium and I had been text on where to go in. But if you ever I don't know if anybody listening to this has ever been to Dodger Stadium, but it's basically a circle around the whole stadium. And so it's dark. It's late. The game's going on. There's fans. There's cars everywhere. And I'm trying to figure out what gate to get in. So my taxi, we probably circled the stadium three or four times before finally I was like, just stop, pull over here. I'm going to go up to this security guy that's right outside of an entrance and be like, listen, this is what's going on. I actually had a baseball bag because I wouldn't say I look like a, a baseball player per se, like I'm kind of smaller. So I went up to the security guard and I told him, hey, I'm a player for the Cardinals. I just got called up and he knew where to go. And luckily he was really nice. He ushered me into the stadium, uh, passed me off to another security guard who actually put me on an elevator and the elevator had fans on it. 
And so they had to drop off the fans first and then take <laughs> me down to the bottom of the stadium where the locker room was. So by the time I finally get down in the locker room, obviously everybody's out of the game. So it's just kind of me and the, the clubbies and things like that. So I get dressed and they show me how to walk to the bullpen and I walk out to the bullpen and it was the top of the ninth and we were losing. So I got to see three outs on my major league, my first major league game. So then the next day was my actual debut. So the next day I actually was obviously there at the park for the whole day. So that was awesome. And then uh, I debuted and uh, you know, like I said, luckily I had gotten that advice just Focusing on Yadier Molina. Don't look up at the stands. Um, and our pitching coach had said, you know, just try to try to tell yourself to go incredibly slow in your delivery because everything's going to be moving so fast. And in the bullpen, I'm just everything's arm side up. Just you're, you know, all the butterflies are going through your stomach. You've worked for this your entire life. And uh, so I got in and, uh, you know. I didn't hear them announce that I was pitching. I didn't hear anything. I left the bullpen gate and I did my jog straight to the mound and did not leave my eyes off Yachty or Molina. And Yachty was at the mound and, you know, extremely nice, um, you know, and uh, he, he even, he said, you know, I, I haven't caught you before. He had seen me from being in big league camp the previous two years. Um, but he said, don't be afraid to shake. And I was like, I'm not shaking Yadier or Molina. You know? <laughs> so the other the other side note to the story is my father-in-law is probably the biggest Yadier or Molina fan in the world, and he threatened me that if I ever got to the big leagues and shook off Yadier or Molina, that you know he wouldn't like me anymore. <laughs> so I have that going on in the back of my head too. Like I can't shake off Yadier or Molina, but the guy just told me, you know, if you want to shake, shake, and I'm just like, all right, I'm not going to do it. But luckily, I got that advice, and it's kind of funny. I go back and watch the video, and uh, the first batter I faced was Jock Peterson, and I struck him out. And the ball, you know, they throw the ball around the infield, and I think it's probably Matt Carpenter who's playing third base. And you can see on the video, I'm so zoned in that I'm just locked in on Matt Carpenter throwing me the ball back. And he obviously tosses it into the dugout because they keep your first strikeout ball. And in my head, I'm just like, what? Why didn't he throw me the ball back? And then I'm like, oh, yeah, that was my first big league strikeout. But then I went back and I just I tried to to focus on Yadier Molina. And obviously I ended up almost shaking, but I didn't. So I will I will. I told my father in law, I didn't shake. You can watch it on TV. But uh, I ended up facing Scott Casimir, who was the opposing pitcher that night. And he was pitching really well. So he's pitching deep in the game. And I don't know, it, it might have been a 1-2 count or 2-2, two, two, and Yadier Molina called a slider. And Scott, Scott Casimir hit left-handed, so it was left on left. And so I, um, I decided, you know, this is – he was mostly an AL pitcher. I don't think he's known for his hitting, per se, and it's the opposing pitcher. Like, I just want to challenge the fastball. Like, I don't want to leave a slider that ends up running into him or, you know, it's slower, maybe puts a better swing on it. So I just sat and stared because literally in my head the whole time I'm thinking, I can't shake off Yachty or Molina, but I don't, I can't shake him off, but I don't want to throw a slider here, but I can't shake him off. And I sat so long that he switched to fastball. So I didn't have to shake him off, but uh, I ended up striking out Casimir with, with a, with a fastball. So I, I was happy with that. 
And also lucky that Yadier Molina knows a thing or two about uh, about calling pitches. Oh my gosh, yes, yeah. I mean, it's again, I did not, you know, I didn't have to shake him off. Um, that was the only time where I literally stared in and was like, I really don't want to throw this pitch right now. But it, it's honestly, it it was great because as a young pitcher, it kind of takes one less thing that you have to think about out of the picture. You know, it's like I know Yadi knows all these hitters you know he's been around a long time he's the best in the game and I know that he you know he studies all the film and and he he does so much behind the scenes work that people don't even realize and and so you just trust him and it it, it makes it easier to where you really don't have to think oh what should I throw next it's oh whatever Yachty puts down I'm convicted with that after 2017 uh I actually I, for the first time in my career, was a free agent. I was a minor league free agent, and I signed with Cincinnati. Um, AAA for Cincinnati's in Louisville. I live about 30 minutes outside the city, so I was like, this is fantastic. Um, I signed with Cincinnati, and I ended up going there and getting sent back to AA for the first time in a while. And it was it was interesting, to say the least. Um because I was counting on, you know, living at home and being in AAA because I had been in AAA or the big leagues basically the last four years. Um, but I actually enjoyed it because I had decided after 17 and I didn't have a great season that from then on it, it was all going to be about fun. You know, I had uh, I had made it to the big leagues and I always said coming up, if I got one out in the big leagues, I would be happy. And sometimes it's hard when you, you get to the big leagues and you just you want to stay there, obviously. Um, and after in 2017, I didn't live by what I said I wanted to live by. And I let kind of that pressure build. So 2018 was awesome because I ended up figuring out, you know, I love baseball and I want it to be fun. And I've gotten it out in the big leagues. So, you know, I can forever call myself a big leaguer, which is a huge accomplishment. So I just went out and had fun. And I ended up, uh, I ended up for pitching for the Reds Double A for three weeks. And uh, on the night I gave up my first run of the season, I got called in, and uh, I ended up getting released, which it was kind of interesting, um, you know, when you perform well. Yeah. But performing well, it made me know that my career wasn't over. Um, luckily, it was the only time I got released in my career. Um, but it worked out for my benefit. I came home for a week. And I got called by the Oakland A's and I ended up going to double A with them for two weeks and then triple A the rest of the triple A season until uh, September. I got called back up to the big leagues with the Oakland A's. And uh, it's funny because obviously the Reds in 2018 were not uh, didn't finish particularly well in the rankings. And I end up in Oakland here who's in, you know, a playoff race in September. And it was awesome. And uh, we clinched a wild card. And uh, interesting enough, we clinched it in Seattle, so got to be a part of a you know celebration of a team making the wild card, and we got to trash Seattle's locker room, so it was perfect. <laughs> that's amazing. So yeah, I mean that's a pretty impressive career arc. You starting your first game, being called by you know Vince Scully in L.A. and ending up on the wild card Oakland A's at the end of your career. Those are some pretty high benchmarks. Was it a monumental experience in your life to see yourself on a baseball card for the first time? And what was that card? My first technical, actual non-team minor league team set card was a Panini card. Uh, I had been in AAA in 2014, and 
my agent called me and said, hey, Panini wants to make a card of you. And, you know, this is how much money they'll give you for you to sign. And I was like, man, somebody's going to pay me to make a card of myself. Like, this sounds amazing. And so uh, I said, absolutely. Like, I didn't care. I would have done it for free. And so, you know, they sent stickers and uh, I signed all the stickers and they got put on the cards. And the Panini card was really cool. And it came out actually, I think, probably about a year and a half before I was even in the big leagues. Um, But the coolest one was after that 2016 season, uh, when I had some big league time with the Cardinals, I was at home and I actually got um, a letter in the mail and I didn't know who it was from. And back then I wasn't, you know, actively buying. I I wasn't even buying any cards at that time. So I didn't know who the mail was from. So I opened it up and it was a major league baseball card of myself. And it was in the 2016 tops updates and highlights, I believe. So it's the, the set that comes out after the season. I, I guess it usually features, you know, all-star cards and guys that got traded during the year and some rookies that have been up that they hadn't made a card of yet. And I was lucky enough to be one of them. And so I actually had no idea I was in the set until I got this card in the mail that was from a fan just asking me to sign it. And there was two in there. So I signed one. I kept the other and I wrote back a letter to the gentleman. And I said, I hadn't seen this card yet. And I, I hope you don't mind, but I kept one for myself. And uh, then about a week later in the mail, I got more from him. And I don't know if he really liked to collect signatures and pairs or what it was, but he had bought and sent me 10 more of them and sent one asking me to sign another one and I could keep the other 10. So I thought that was very generous. So I signed the other one. So he ended up with two signed cards and I ended up with 11 free ones from uh, from a fan. So that that was very nice. But it was it was really cool to actually see yourself on a Major League Baseball card. Um, And it's one of those things as a kid, you dream about it and and it it actually happened, which is fantastic. And it was uh, it was kind of a surreal moment. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I had my little league card. I think I still have it floating around somewhere. I definitely. And uh, my, my the the signature I have now is basically the signature I created when I was about eight years old in anticipation of having a major league career. I was like, well, I'm going to have to have a cool autograph, uh, and that's basically both my brother and I still use that same signature to this day. Well, so you're yeah, living absolutely. the dream, Dean. You are living the dream. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, when I when I was younger. And some of the cards that I didn't really particularly care for, I, I, I practiced a signature on actual Major League Baseball cards um, <laughs> because I was hoping one day to have to do it. And then it actually coming to real life, it was it was crazy. But uh, what was good for me in 2017 was uh, I, I, for whatever reason, I started researching sports cards again. And it kind of intrigued me. And, you know, in 16, I was fortunate to have quite a bit of big league time. And after spending basically six full years in the minor leagues, you know, I had a little bit of, I would call disposable income. Um, And I decided, you know, I wanted to venture back into sports cards. And it just so happened that there was one card shop that was around in Tacoma, Washington. It was probably about a 20 minute drive. And I ended up driving there one day and uh, the guy was really nice, good shop. Um, but you could tell he didn't get much foot traffic and, uh, just, we created kind of a bond and we talked about cards and sports and everything in between and, uh, ended up, he had two tobacco cards that I ended up buying off of him. 
and uh, one was a T205 Joe Tinker, and the other was a T207 McGraw. So both Hall of Famers, and I just, I held them in my hand and was like, man, these are really cool. You know, they're over 100 years old. And when I was a young kid collecting, I, you know, I saw those types of cards in the Beckett catalogs and never thought they were attainable and uh, never went to any shows or, you know, really any card shops as a kid. So I never saw any. I just, I thought that they were all just as rare as the Hornus Wagner. And um, so being able to find those, it kind of really started into that uh, really wanting to go into tobacco cards. And now that you've retired, you have plenty of time to build two binder sets of T206s. All right, let's talk about the cards. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll stop being yes, a fanboy. We can, we can talk about the cards. It, you know, for folks who listen, we went in episode four, we went over the what we called the blueprint for building the monster. And that was uh, how to build a T206 set for $25,000, which is on the, you know, uh, for most people on the low end in terms of getting a, a nice looking set with decent looking cards that are intact. Dean does things a little differently, though. You want to talk a little bit about how you collect Dean and why you started doing this? Yeah, absolutely. So originally when I got into tobacco cards, I, I wanted the big guys. Those were only the guys that I started to collect was the big time Hall of Famers. And I got to thinking, I thought, you know, the big 16 is probably better bang for your buck. You know, down down the road, a Cobb is going to grow a lot more uh, in value than, you know, a common card. And so originally I was, I just want as many as the big 16 as I can get, probably in that, you know, authentic to two range. Well, then I ended up with a Christy Mathewson that was somehow graded as an authentic, but I mean, it was three fourths of a card. It was, you know, really ugly, but it was cheap enough that I, you know, I was like big 16, you know, I'll buy it. And so I got to looking at this card and I was just like, you know, this would be a perfect card for a binder. And around that time, like the binders had kind of gotten popular. And then I got to thinking, you know, I know as a kid, I didn't think these were attainable. And I have two young boys. My oldest just turned four and my youngest is two and a half. And so I wanted them to enjoy, you know, baseball cards and card shows if they want to. But I figured they would enjoy it more if there was a binder to flip through or a card that they could take out that I wasn't scared. Oh, no, don't bend it. Don't rip it in half. Um and I didn't think they would get that effect with cards that were encased in holders. And so I decided that I was going to do two binder beaters, as we like to call them, and one for each of my sons. And so I started off doing the binder beater, and I kind of broke it down, and I found out that it was probably going to cost, you know, around fifteen to $20,000. But then I decided, you know what? I want my kids to hold it. I don't want them to worry about trashing it. So I wanted to go after the nastiest cards I could find. And so it kind of set off jokingly with a lot of members in the group of, you know, what a Dean card is. And it's, you know, ripped in half, three quarters of a card, drawn on, taped. It, it doesn't matter. Anything goes. Heavily creased. If you can see a little bit of the card, it's good. And so... 
I just decided to get them as cheap and as cheap as possible. So kind of my rule of thumb is I try to stay for commons around ten dollars. Um, some you can get for less. I would say ten is usually the bottom dollar that most people will sell them for. Occasionally I can get it down to seven or eight bucks, but not very often. It's got to be really bad. And then for the short prints, I try to stay around fifteen. For obviously the guys that are kind of lesser short prints, like a a Lindemann, Schaefer, uh, guys like that. And and there's some exceptions, you know, like Titus or seems like Dummy Taylor gets a little bit more money, commands a little bit higher of, of a dollar for his card. So some of the commons, there's some exceptions to every rules. So for those type of short prints, I said try to stay around 15 bucks. For the Southern Leaguers, I love to be at $40 or under. Um, and I will find Southern Leaguers are by far the toughest for a beater binder. Because they're already kind of scarce, um, but it's hard to find them for the price you want and in really bad enough condition that they're under $40. So that's where I've struggled the most is with the Southern Leaguers, not even the Hall of Famers. Like Hall of Famers are pretty easy to get. Um, And then the Hall of Famers, I tried to stay under $50 if it was, you know, more of your tier one, tier two guys. And then obviously your Cobbs and, um, the big guys and even some of the tier threes like uh, a Walsh, I would say, um, Eddie Collins, guys like that. You're probably more around the $75 range. Um, and then, you know, Cobbs and Youngs and Johnsons and the big guys are kind of um, what you can get. Um, probably my one of my favorite cards. I ended up with a Cobb bat on that is just the bottom half of the card. So it saved me a bunch of money in my binder because – I don't remember exactly, but it's probably somewhere around $150, which people are like, that's insane. You paid $150 for a half of a cob. But I'm like, well, what's insane is I already had got lucky, found a really cheap one for around $450. So I'm like, it saved me $300. Yeah. And that's just kind of <laughs> how I think. Like, I'm all about downgrading. Most people are about upgrading, but downgrading's huge for me. What is the, what is the smallest amount of a card you will consider a card? So a half, obviously, the half cob makes it in. How much less of a card would you accept for the binder? Oh, man. Are you thinking about my Demet that I sold you? Do you still have that card? It's I about do have one it. small See? speck of color, and the rest of it is missing paper. So you, so you found that Demet. Card. You sold that's it to a... me, and then that went to Dean. Yeah, so that's we yes. kept that one family. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and that's I, do, I, I do have the Demet New York. It's kind of funny. I don't have Demet. That's the only Demet I have. I've never owned another one. Um, for whatever reason, he's been harder to find, so I don't even have him in binder two yet. But that demo is actually technically it's a it's a full card. It's just paper lost the whole card, other than his name, basically. Um, <laughs> and I mean, it would be even better if it was a demo at St. Louis, because so also I guess I should say for money wise, I decided that I was going to build it to five eighteen, so I wasn't going to include demo and O'Hara with the St. Louis polar bear variations. Um, and the only reason I decided was no offense to Demet and O'Hara, but I didn't want to drop, you know, Cobb money on guys that didn't have Cobb careers. So I, don't get me wrong. If I find one that, you know, is completely trashed and is the price is right. Like I'll get them and I'll add it to the binder, you know, same with plank or something, you know, you, somehow you, you stumble upon some, you know, one fourth of a plank maybe. But going back to your question, I, w- I would say about half of the card 
is is where I'm at. I don't think I have any in there that you would technically say. I probably have maybe two that you would say are less than half of a card. And one was actually, uh, I think it was a Fred Clark padding that I got for you. And it also has a skim back. So it's really nasty. <laughs> I think listening to the way Dean's collecting here, I think it's a really awesome example just to show everyone that they can build the set exactly the way they want to the way that fits with their collecting interest, with their ability to share it with family, with a budget, and finding the way that intersects and then, you know, proceeding along a project is a really, really awesome way to collect. Right. And and that's the thing is, you know, I have two sons and I want to treat them as equally as possible. And, you know, I just, I got to thinking and it's like, if I do one binder, you know, I hope I'm able to keep it throughout my life. And I hope that they like it. And if they like it, you know, what are they going to have to do? They're going to have to split up a binder. So my thought was, you know, instead of doing a pretty nice binder for, you know, I think that your blueprint is really good. I think what you have your commons at about 20 to 25 bucks. I think it was 18. Okay. 18. Yeah. Cause I think you can find, you can find like really pretty nice commons for right around that $20 range. Um, and so, but, but I was thinking, you know, what if I could do two binders for the price of that? And then they each have one. And like I said, I have pictures of my kids holding that half of Cobb. Like how many four and two and a half year olds have held a Ty Cobb baseball card that was original? You know, I, I don't know many unless it's encased. Um, and I don't have to worry about it. And I, I have a blast. My youngest will flip through them um in the binder he probably shows more interest than my oldest and every card he points to and he says oops because they all have problems on them and i just (laughs) so he calls it the oops binder and he knows that his is blue because blue is his favorite color so his is incomplete i'm about 60 away from his and i did get to the 518 in the first one um and so I just decided I wanted to do them as cheap as possible so I could try and actually have two complete sets. Some will argue they're not complete because half cards are only half of a card. So I probably only had, it probably only took me like 318 (laughs) cards to complete 518, I guess. (laughs) Um, But it's fun. It really is fun because you just, you're never, I would say, I have fun with it because I'm never really done. I feel like there's always a chance to downgrade. Like you can always, <laughs> you can always find a worse card. And if you do, like for instance, you know, the Cobbs, I had quite a bit of Cobbs and I've probably downgraded three, four times on my Cobbs. And so, like I said, I'm not a seller per se, but if I downgrade, then, you know, I'll sell the others. And usually i try to break even sometimes I lose a couple bucks but hopefully it helps out somebody else's collection like I don't I don't make I really don't make money per se but when I downgrade it saves me money on my binder so I guess that's the way I look at saving myself money so what's we talked about what kind of what the the floor is what's the ceiling what's too nice for the set where do you what's the cutoff for you I mean I don't obviously think always looking at download, but <laughs> currently in the binders, like what's the nicest thing that you have in there? Well, I don't, I wouldn't say anything is too nice. Like if you get a great deal or you buy a big lot, you know, that somehow people missed off of eBay or, you know, all these sites, then it's not, 
it's not too nice to go in the binder per se, but it'll probably eventually get downgraded because you might find something, you know, say I, I find a nice common that's really nice with maybe a polar bear back and I'm into it for $10. Well, if I buy a lot that has, you know, more of a trash example of that card, well then maybe I can get $20 out of that card and then that's a free card for the binder, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I don't count it as free, but you know, you actually made a little bit of that income. So um, it's not more money out of your pocket, if that per se makes sense. Um, I wouldn't say anything's, anything's too nice. I, probably some of the nicest stuff I have in the binder has got to be, you know, there's maybe like 10 commons that are, you know, they measure right. There's really not much wrong with them. Um, some of them might have a decent back. And I just got lucky that they came in, in a, a group or um, that somebody was selling it and I saw it and it was, you know, pretty cheap. So I jumped on it. Yeah, I mean, I a think couple of, a couple of no oops cards. Yeah, <laughs> there's a yeah, there's a couple. I, I would say binder one now is basically everything is insanely bad, which is great because <laughs> I mean, like I said, originally it kind of got on as a little bit of a challenge in a game between myself and another member, like who could create the worst binder. Um, but he kind of went off in a different direction because I think he saw some of the stuff I was buying and was like, I wouldn't even touch that. So I, I, I would like to call myself, I'm kind of like a rescue guy too, you know, like people can bring these nasty cards to me and I'll rescue them and give them life. Yeah. I think this is great because, you know, collecting this way also removes barriers to entry to people who, yeah, $20 for a comment is a lot when you're, when you need 500 of them. So it adds up very, very quickly. Um, so two oh, kind of pra- Yeah, go ahead. No, it, it definitely adds up quickly. And even, you know, even $10 a common adds up quickly. Um, but, you know, you can hopefully get double. But if you think about it, like when I was a kid and prices were probably even cheaper back then, if you could have told me I could get a T206 for $10, I would have been like, this is amazing. You know, um, this is over 100 years old that you get to you get to hold in your hand. And one of the first things that, uh, you know, one of the, one of a, a dealer kind of taught me at one of my first shows was just smell them. And it sounds really weird, but it's like, sometimes you can still smell that tobacco on it. It's, it's interesting, you know, to hold something that that is that old in your hand, but then like the cards I collect, I feel like all of the cards probably have a story, but the cards I collect, I feel like have exchanged hands probably way more times than ones that look nice. If that makes sense. Like how many people, have owned this card before me and have enjoyed it and passed it on. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a point I've definitely made. And I think Jay and I have talked about that on previous episodes. Yeah. The history of the cards is so intriguing. I actually had the same experience. I was uh, in the early nineties. I was, uh, I think 12 or 13. I went to Cooperstown for the first time and went into a shop and they had a cyborger common for 10 bucks with a Piedmont back. And I bought it and was, I couldn't believe I was getting a card from the Honus, you know, the way I looked at it at the time, the Honus Wagner set, and I could get in there for $10. And that's what, what, you know, started all of this for me was just how exciting it was to be a part of that history and then starting to build the set from there. And it was years until I actually did it. In terms of practical questions for people who want to do this, uh, number one, really basic what type of binder pages are you using? And number two, where are you finding these cards to buy? 
oh man, now I'm just creating my competition. <laughs> <laughs> you can be just for the public benefit. Yeah, I, I, I guess I'm. I'm almost, I'm almost done with binder two. I don't know if I'm crazy enough to start binder three. Well, I guess your first question was what binder do I, binder pages do I use? I use the 20 on a sheet. It's the 20 pages. I've seen the 15. I will say, I think that the 15 holds them in better. I don't like to look as much, but if you're building a, a nicer set and you worry about the tops of the cards getting dinged or them sliding, I'd probably go with the 15 per page. Uh, the 20, I like the, I like to look better for me. I always joke with people. They can definitely send my mail PWE because <laughs> if it gets run over by a truck, it'll just make it even worse looking, which is great for my binder. <laughs> so if some of the tops are sticking out and I flip a page and a little, you know, flake goes missing off the card, I don't cry over it. Um, so those are the pages. I don't even know. You know, Jay probably knows better what the actual brands are if he wants to to say what those are for listeners. Because, like I said, it was all made for me, which I was lucky and fortunate about. Well, I'm, Jay, actually not, I'm actually not certain, but we could definitely post some links. I think for collectors who are listening, it's just a question of do you want to use the 15 pocket pages or the 20 pocket pages, 5x3 or 5x4. And what Dean is saying on the 5x4, the pocket is a little bit narrow. So if you get a card that's really tall, it sticks out like a millimeter or two and then on the 15 pocket pages the the wells are sort of really deep but then the cars look a little bit like they're floating um i use the 15 pocket pages and then i just sort of try to line them all up but there's a lot of random wasted space i would say yeah you're, you're also building a binder not as much a beater one but so you're all you're you're using that just because it's easier to have access to and looks pretty right in some other format that other people can. I I do as well. I think I was definitely a part of the wave of binder interest. Um, My approach has generally been to try to find cards that look really nice, but might have, you know, a corner crease or some sort of imperfection. So something in the two, but looks better range. And then I built that into a binder and I think it makes it really visually appealing. Um, But unlike Dean, I definitely could not give my binder to anyone under the age of, say driving out of fear that they might destroy it also yeah. when i've seen pictures of, of people's collections that have you know an entire set in 500 slabs just the sheer volume of how much space that takes up it just makes it rather unwieldy in my opinion i mean we're talking an entire closet several large you know metal tub boxes filled with slabs just because it, it volumes up really fast being able to scan through a binder and turn the pages i think is sort of that really nice connection to childhood when you would just flip through cards you would assemble pages you had sets and would put them in pages and it's really really visually appealing right absolutely and that's what yeah i would say for me when i first started and i was just kind of buying the big boys of the set and they were all graded like i would get them in and i'd be excited when i opened the mail but then i'd you know put them in a box and put them in my safe and it would be like i didn't go up and look at them you know and now i have binders and you know, I, I can open up the binders and flip through and see all these cards. And it just brings you back to your childhood. Like I know when I was a kid, you know, I had a binder and I would put them in the sleeves and you, you know, I would always take them out and change like team's name. Whatever. Oh, I see. <laughs> right. But for the, for the T206, I'm huge alphabetically, but you can do it any way you want. I just, it's easier for me to put them in and, you know, I don't know. The teams are just, there's so many 
different teams in the set and only some teams only have, you know, a couple players. And so I don't want to have a whole page just of those players, but then I don't want the same teams on the same different teams on the same page. But yeah, I think exactly what you're saying. And it's the same for me. Like since I've started these binders, like I flip through them probably at least three times a week, you know, and in the past I might've opened up my safe and looked at graded stuff, you know, every couple months. So I think that's exactly right. And I, I, I can say, you know, similar things. I think the binder just makes it much more attainable. The cards are literally at your hand's reach. It's easy to find certain things. You just, you know, you flip through pages and find what you're looking for. You can also take them out and look at different nuances. I know we have people that collect back stamps. There's a lot of, a lot of cards, especially in my line have writing on them. Sometimes you can decipher you know, a lot of people like to put the position of the player on there, or maybe if they were traded, um, you know, I have some cards where the name on the bottom's missing and people have tried to write it on there. Uh, I bought a, is it Shikati? Instead of the C, uh, instead of the C in his first name, it looks like they put a P, so it reads like Picati instead of Shikati. <laughs> so it, it, it's just little things like that, that sometimes, you know, sometimes when they're in a slab, you might not be able to see the little nuances that are on the card. And, and to me, that just continues to tell the history of it and the type of people that owned it. Like I would imagine the people that put positions or stats and things like that on it were people that followed along in the box scores, you know, and back then what they probably only had box scores in the newspaper. I don't know. Every so often, theoretically, if you're collecting something, it's because you enjoy it. And I, I, I know I personally like, if I'm collect, if I have a collection, I, I want to enjoy it. And part of enjoying it is actually, you know, touching it, feeling it, seeing it, not, you know, grabbing it and putting it away. And I understand, don't get me wrong, like investment, like a lot of the, you know, these cards are big time investments and, and that's what, and that's not a wrong way to do any of it. There's no wrong way, which is so, so nice about, you know, sports cards and collecting, especially like the T206. But for me, like I said, like, Yes, I will. I sell I sell cards, but usually it's, you know, the ones that I've downgraded, but I just try to get my money back out of them, you know, so I'm not losing money. Um, but at the same time, helping out somebody else's binder. And I will kind of segue that into finally answering your question. And so I can have competition. Um, I would say I'm probably about mostly 50 50 on uh tobacco buying off of tobacco row from fellow members and ebay i have not ventured into any auction houses i just i'm not very good at math and i don't want to have to sit there and calculate what the buyer's premium is <laughs> and the shipping cost and the you know if you place a bid at this time well then there's extended bidding it would just make my head go crazy and most of the time the stuff in the auctions is all really nice and expensive stuff anyways yeah. So it's not usually a place for me. Um, boy, I know Jay's helped me out a ton. Um, he kind of knows what I like to pay, and I like to bust him up even a little bit more. <laughs> I think re recently I got a, a lot for $8 a card on him. Um, so I definitely won that negotiation. But Dean, I think he's up. won some in the past on me. Dean beats me up. <laughs> but, it, all, but with that being said – the I, I I buy them and I put them in the binder and I take them. But the one the most the cards that I like the least in my binders are the ones that have the three sides trimmed off of. Um, 
Mm. Because they just the cards look nice. They're just cut, you know. I would rather have a card that's super wrinkled in a full card or a little bit of paper missing or paper add than the card that has three of the borders trimmed off. So it's just their name and the picture with the color. I don't know. It just I still like them and I still put them in the binder, but that's probably my least likable cards in the binder. Um, but yeah, and then and then eBay, you know, I'm like anybody else. I spend way too much time on there scouring through. Um, I will say I've gotten extremely lucky on finding some pretty big lots of uh, cards that weren't so nice. I've been fortunate to buy like a big lot and then the seller email me and say, hey, I got these ones and they're even worse. Would you be interested? And I'm like, <laughs> absolutely. I think for buying – so this is like – some of it's luck on keeping the price down, but for binder one – I bought a massive lot on eBay and they were all okay, but they had front paper loss. They had been wet and stuck together. Um, not an issue for me. So I get an email later from the seller and says, Hey, I have these, you know, 10 others and they're just a little bit worse. And he, he sends them to me. If you'd be interested, I'll send you pictures. And I'm like, absolutely. And so in the picture was a Lundgren Chicago, which is a really hard short print. And unfortunately, it wasn't a Piedmont 350. It was a Piedmont 150. So it wasn't even an Elite 11, which would have been insane. But he sold me this lot of 10 cards, which had a Lundgren Chicago and a McGraw finger pointing in the air, which you couldn't see his face, but you could see the picture or the uh, finger in his name. Um, and so and there, I think there was a Kling portrait in there, too. And it was a EPDG back and he sold them to me for seven bucks a card. So, it, you know, sometimes you just get lucky. Some really like like the half cob was an eBay buy, um, and you just get lucky that sometimes those things get posted and you're able to be the highest bidder. Um, I do go to shows. I will say, I go when I can. We have a local one. Unfortunately, the gentleman that had tobacco passed away, so now you're lucky if there's maybe ten T206 cards in the room. I did go to the Philly show this year, um, and because I went, Jay decided not to go because he <laughs> knew I was going to be there, so he was like, I'm not making it. I can't see this guy face-to-face. He'll beat me up too much on prices. But I uh, I did – I made a trip to the Philly show, and so going to the Philly show, was it was awesome. And it's kind of funny. I ended up with a corner-missing green cob and a ripped-in-half Matthewson uh, portrait. So there was uh, there was lots of good cards up there for me. And uh, the Philly show is the biggest show I'd ever been to. And I absolutely loved it. And I, I hope to get to the national one day. Um, but we'll see. Let's hope there's a national again. Right. So, I, you know, I was going to try and make it this year if I could. Um, but, you know, with everything, everything going on, we'll see when another card show uh, even even comes up. I know I've seen. I think it was one that you know kind of did it off of, of their Facebook. Um, I thought that was an interesting idea. But uh, yeah, I, I just I love going to the card shows because you never know what you're gonna find. Um, every once in a while, you'll get lucky. And uh, when I was in uh, AAA with the A's, we played in Nashville, and Nashville had I want to say it was twice a month show, and I ended up going and. There was a, a gentleman there that had some some T206, some older stuff. And I will say, other than my T206 binders and a, a handful of other graded T206 cards, 
The only other non-T206 stuff I have, one is a complete 1888 uh, RNS artistic set, and the mm-hmm. other is now a complete uh, 1888 scrap set, which that was very difficult to do. I don't know why I, I gave myself that headache. But the last one's being graded at SGC. Um, and all those are so old that I just wanted to have them all graded by SGC. But uh, I met a, a dealer, a gentleman there in Nashville, and that's where I bought the 1888 r Artistics. And the only reason I bought them was because it was the complete set. And they were all super nice. Like some of them came back sevens, um, which to be that old was incredible to me. But it was fortunate because I, you know, struck a conversation with him. I purchased those off of him and uh, I ended up uh, getting his email through it. And I think it was a couple winters ago. I got an email from him saying that he had some new T206 in and he'd send me pictures. And one of them, again, every once in a while you get lucky, was a home run Baker cycle back, which is now in Jay's back run. But uh, we made a good trade, so it worked out for me. <laughs> I think I think another thing that 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 Dean personifies as as you're talking about the way you collect is really really good social interaction with people, which can help when you develop a reputation as you collect X because people know that and and people are willing to work and help you on your project but also a willingness to do the work and sort of pick through a number of auctions and a number of listings to find the specific things that are going to fit your collection. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Monster Podcast, Episode 8, again, recorded during the COVID quarantine. Thank you all for your support and encouragement for this during this time. We're really grateful to our listeners. And of course, Thank you to Dean today for giving us an hour of your time on Easter weekend. I know you've got your family waiting to do an Easter egg hunt. Uh, we're grateful. Thanks for sharing all your knowledge and expertise. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was a great time. I appreciate it. Thanks, dude. And we'll be back soon with some more episodes during the quarantine. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to The Monster Podcast. Don't forget to check us out online at themonsterpodcast.com and on social media at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. See you next time.